to Various Things. I'm Gary Long. Today's episode is with Andrew Nietzsche. As long as I've known Andrew, he has been writing, whether in his zine Nothing is Cool, lyrics for his band Tri-State Killing Spree, or currently as the editor-in-chief of RVA Magazine. In fact, his writing is how I got to know him when he interviewed my 15 or 16-year-old self for a zine he was doing back in 95 or 96. So when I started doing these interviews, I knew I wanted to interview him. We have broken this interview up into four parts. This is part one. Enjoy. Like, list off what you do, I guess, or how would you... Um, well, you know, I'm not really doing music anymore. Uh, I, I, the last band I was in that actually played shows was in 2006. Um, but, you know, of course I used to do that. Uh, I, I, you know, the main thing is, like, these days I'm, I'm actually working as the editor-in-chief at RVA Magazine, which is, like, my only job and has been my only job since about uh, fall 2012. Um, it, you know, it pays about the same as, like, working fast food or something, but at least I can do it for a living and not have to, like, have a day job. Right. So I had a day job from probably spring 2010 till till uh, fall 2012 um, and and was doing RVA mag at the same time and making you know it, it, some money but not enough and it eventually got to the point where they were able to hire me full-time which is nice so <clears throat> as far as what I do for a living that's it um, as far as projects I mean I'm always blogging I mainly use tumblr now uh, so I'm I'm still doing that. Uh, doing the magazine cuts down. Like I used to be a ridiculous blogger and post constant stuff all the time, and that's just an outgrowth of like zines I used to do, which I haven't done uh, an actual paper zine since 2006 either. But it's interesting because I'm working on one right now, which might seem odd in light of the fact that I, you know, do a magazine for a living, but it's like, there's a lot of stuff that I write that, uh, I think doesn't really fit in with what the magazine does. And I put some of that on my blog, but like, I'm starting to like want to create something a little more permanent and like a little more like, A, it's an artistic statement and B, it's something that I'm doing on my own and not just something I'm doing for my job. So, um, what do you think a a zine can bring to a, a reader nowadays with the huge availability of information and um, the mm-hmm. quick, quick uh, cycle of um, that information. Oh, sure. Well, like when I did blogs, a lot of the stuff that I did in blogs was stuff I used to use a zine for, and I didn't have the blog format or whatever, and it didn't have the reach, and uh, it, a zine was the only way to do it. You know, and I think a lot of people in the 90s who would have made zines if they came up now would probably just have a blog. You know, it's not needed for straight up, like, communication anymore. You don't have to print out your writings and hand them to people in order to get that information or that expression to them. Uh, so I think there's probably a lot less themes now because of that. However, I do think they're an actual piece of art where a blog is not, it's not art, it's 
so much as it's writing and it's art in that way, but it's not art in the way of making an object. And I think there's value. And maybe I'm just old. I'm 38. You know, I'm coming from a different perspective than a 19-year-old right now. I think some 19-year-olds would agree with me. Some would disagree. But this may be a viewpoint that's disappearing. But I think there's intrinsic value in creating an object that you can hand to another person and it can be a possession that they have rather than something they encounter on the Internet, experience, and then do not uh, have to refer back to. Like, they can go back to that URL, but maybe it'll be gone. Maybe you'll freak out and take down your blog one day because you're depressed, and then they can't read it again, you know? That's, that's I true. think it's yeah. good to, to have a tangible thing to hand people. And trying to explain in rational terms why I think that's good is difficult. I mean, it's the same reason that it would be difficult to explain to somebody who got rid of all their books once they got an e-reader why my house is still full of books, <laughs> why I bought books at Barnes & Noble last night. It's difficult to explain to people why I, have, why I have crates and crates of cassettes left over from the 90s when they were still being made, mass-marketed, and I was buying them when I could just buy a bigger hard drive, sell all that shit, and just have it all as MP3s. It's like the reason those things matter to me is not something I feel is entirely rational. Like so maybe a... They think that I'm just not even right, you know? Right. That is how I feel, and there's a lot of other people that feel that way. And I think uh, <laughs> creating an object that people have to hold and, and, and interact with has intrinsic value. I, I hear what you're saying. I think... I think there's maybe like two points uh, that that one could kind of go on that. One one would be um yeah there is an inherent uh, you know as we encounter these things and build our lives around them there's a certain romanticism that we can build for the for the format itself and so that that needs to be you know people listening to vinyl records and remembering like I don't know let's say a a day that they were listening to vinyl record and it just stuck in their mind and they're like wow that that's music to me or something like that. But also you're you're talking about something that the digital realm, well, we don't have a literacy for it, I think, at a certain level to be able to appreciate it as an art form. Like we haven't really discovered the digital presentation in a, in a way that would actually attribute itself to the things that we do ascribe to art. Um, I think a lot of that is, is, is where the technology is and that it's kind of cookie cutter, you know? So it's not like if you sit down with your writings, you know, you have your format that you put together and, and you know, it's a much more human thing. Um, so I, I think it's a little bit of that, but I also think it, it, um, it's just so new that we're not really, we can't really distinguish it from, from just a mechanism to deliver meaningless content. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? I, yeah, I, I understand the line of thought you're you're going through here, but I don't think uh, it's necessarily not not that I disagree with it. It's mm -hmm. just not necessarily a line of thought that impacts me mm -hmm. uh, as far as what I choose to do. I think for me, and what you were saying about romanticism is an important point, and that's why I say maybe I'm wrong mm -hmm. about the permanence of objects being a, an intrinsic good. Uh, because maybe I am just romanticizing, and, and a lot of times romanticism can cloud your mind to the truth. And I recognize that. It doesn't mean it won't have that effect on me, but I'm aware it's a possibility. Um, the problem is that I don't think that's 
I don't think that's the only issue with regard to digital. I don't think that us relating to the format is the only issue. I think that there is an issue of uh, permanence and stability with regard to computer technology that is just not there. And that concludes part one of the interview. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on March 22nd, 2014. various things. This is part two of our four-part interview with Andrew Nietzsche. Enjoy. That permanence of that zine that you're talking about, like one thing I've noticed is recently people have been doing a lot of histories and um, and all these things are going back to these uh, physical things, whether whether it's uh, note, notes that people have taken or books. Do you think that contributes to a stronger culture by having these physical items? Well, I may, I mean, of course, this is a difficult question to answer objectively, but from a subjective presence, yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Ah, I'm totally, uh, I'm totally a big believer in that, and um, that inspires me to talk about a thing that I actually have been uh, in the planning stages of. Um, I okay. want to write like a history of the the hardcore movement in the '90s as it um, kind of branched out from that point. You know, this is something you may or may not remember, but Maximum Rock and Roll in the early 90s was a very widely utilized resource for uh, promotion and just, um, you know, you know, information dispersal, say. And Maximum Rock and Roll had certain political aims, but that had come from punk rock, but they were not necessarily regulating the idea of what punk sounded like. And because the community had been around for 15 years at that point, and a lot of people had taken things in a lot of different directions from a foundational perspective of punk values and punk ideals, you were getting bands who still thought of themselves as being part of the extended network, but maybe they just sounded like death metal, or maybe they just sounded like emo rock, you know, alt rock, whatever. Sure. And there was a point where Tim Yohannan said, this is what punk sounds like. If you don't sound like this, you're not punk enough for maximum rock and roll. And beginning with this issue, we will reject your records. We will not review them. We will not cover them. And wow. that is what led to, oh, yeah, I remember it happening, 1992, I believe. And that's what led to Heart Attack being created. That's what led to Punk Planet being created. And that kind of spun that scene off. Or really, that was like two scenes. There was that's where Hitlist came from, which mm-hmm. was kind of like the 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 apolitical garage punk end of things. A lot of people spun themselves off from Maximum Rock and Roll because Maximum Rock and Roll kind of drew a line in the sand 
for the scene and said that if you're on the other side of that line, you're not part of our scene anymore. And I think there's a lot of history being lost to kind of bring it back around to what you were saying. There's a lot of history being lost in the fact that those scenes that spun off at that moment, the people who went and did Hard Attack and were making chaotic hardcore and like kind of emo records and people who were doing Punk Planet and who were doing this really underground version of like what eventually evolved into the modern indie rock scene, like the history that got those people from one place to another is gone. And you have kids now who might know about Sasha maybe, but they don't know who Sasha were listening to. And you definitely get kids where you can tell their influences are like the last couple of generations of the bands in the style that they, they're making and more mainstream stuff. But they're not tracing the line back to punk. I remember in 2003 or maybe 2001, a local band from Richmond that were teenagers playing a show with us and me saying, you guys sound like Indian Summer and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, just just chaotic hardcore bands and emo bands from the 90s. And they had never heard of any of it. They had happened upon it completely in isolation. And in a way, it's good that they were able to come up with that. But even in 2001, they had no way of tracing their own history back beyond the bands they were listening to. Like, that is extremely no, sad. <laughs> yeah, and there's just no through line. And in 2014, it's worse. You know, there there was a book called Burning Fight, which, uh, you know, much props to the guy who wrote it for bothering to get off his ass and write it, but it's not very well written. It's mostly an oral history. And, like, it's a bunch of isolated uh, chunks, like here's a band, here's a band, here's a band, and it's like the history of each band. But it doesn't cohere into a narrative very well, and it's not very well written. And I just feel like, from a critical standpoint, it's very lacking. The guy makes references to the Bad Brains and the Chromags way too many times. So eventually you're just like, you know, he said it so many times that it stops meaning anything, and you're still left with, like, where were these bands coming from musically? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and as a social political movement, how are they deriving their politics and their their day-to-day -day behaviors within the punk scene, where was this all coming from? I want to write a book that goes through that whole era and starts with why it became its own thing in the first place and ends up with stuff like the Blood Brothers getting famous, you know, because I think that is a whole history that is not available. And I think as we continue, yeah, we're going to need these physical representations and we're going to need people who sit there and track the history and keep the records and work out from, you know, because I'm going to have to go through old boxes of zines from the 90s to really do this right. Hmm. There's things that I remember and there's things that I don't. And what I really need is a paper trail that can help me figure out which of my, you know, based on the memories I have, what was really going on in detail so I can actually write it down. And without that, you're fucked. And I think a lot of those genres are, for better or for worse, uh, sorely lacking in their history because that record is just not there. You know, I wonder how bad when Tim Buchanan said that he fractured punk rock because nowadays you definitely like one thing I've been kind of like trying to take this line on is like punk as culture, not as genre. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I've always thought that. Yeah, and um, it, it seems obvious. I mean, I guess I've kind of always thought it, too, because of, like, just, yeah. you know, you have, like, a DOA ethic and this shit. But nowadays, it, it I think it's something that kind of needs to be, like, stated more clearly because, I don't know, I put a song up on SoundCloud. Some kid was like, that's not punk rock. And I was, like, kind of looking at his thing, and I'm like, dude, this is punk rock to me. You know, like, it's not punk rock. It's not punk rock. It's like punk and culture, man. Like, I'm... But then simultaneously, there's things that are definitely not punk and culture, but they're punk and genre. You know what I mean? Like, um, like Blink-182 or something. That's really weird is like those kind of things. Like when I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, I mean, let's say Blink-182 for shits and giggles. That's probably a completely tear downable yeah. <laughs> all over it. But let's say Blink-182 because they were very mainstream famous and they still are. And, and like looking at their fan base and the way they conduct their business. And that's the main issue that mm-hmm. I have with bands that I would be like, well, what punk culture are you bringing to the table? is like the way they conduct their business. And, um, yeah, Blink-182 are probably baby's first punk band for a lot of kids who are growing up today or maybe even were growing up uh, five or ten years ago. I remember being at a show, at a house show, like two or three years ago. I went to see this band from Chicago who sound kind of like Captain Jazz or something. And their encore ended up being Damaged by Blink-182. And I was like, oh, are you serious? Are you really doing this? And the whole place was going crazy. Those kids were, and it was just, it's because they're so much younger than me that their relationship to Damn It by Blink-182 is fundamentally different. Because to me, Blink-182 was this pop-punk band who crossed over. And Mm -hmm. whatever. But they were not a band I was listening to before that. And then they became a band that you couldn't get away from. And I kind of, I enjoy their songs. They're two tappers. But I don't have, like this seminal relationship to it where it's like, oh, this was a part of my youth. There was a time where this was my favorite band. But somebody who was 12 when Damn It came out mm-hmm. or somebody who was who was eight, you know, that's really important to them. So when you're at a show full of kids in their mid-20s watching a band who's the same age, that's going to have a completely different resonance for those kids. And I was kind of standing there like, what? You know, but it, it happens. So then it's like, they all really did get into punk. They're all at a house show watching mm-hmm. a band on an indie label. So this is where it gets weird because, like, Blink-182 for us, and, again, as I said, you can poke holes in this if you want, but, like, for the sake of argument, Blink-182 definitely transcended the idea of being part of the punk culture. Definitely. And definitely. a mainstream band, and they didn't really bring any values with them to the mainstream. They weren't like Rage Against the Machine being like, now that we have your attention, you're going to watch this video about Leonard Peltier. They were like, okay, let's just be silly and goofy and make fun of boy bands. And it's like, that didn't have an effect of introducing 8- or 12-year-olds into punk as a DIY movement. But some of them ended up in the DIY movement anyway. So is Blink-182 entirely not punk? You know? And that concludes part two of our four-part interview. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on March 22, 2014.
we're back with various things. This is part three of our four-part interview with Andrew Nietzsche. Enjoy. What do you think is the best job an editor can do? Well, like, what, do you, what do you feel is your like ethical responsibility as an editor? Like, or or there, there yeah. are two levels, and um, when I got to the magazine, it was really clear to me, to be completely frank, that the previous editors had not really known what they were doing on a level of actual uh, content and mechanics structuring as far as an article goes, as far as taking somebody's rough draft and being able to polish it up and make it a better article. Um, they hadn't really had those skills. They hadn't had copy editing skills or grammar skills or uh, polishing up type skills where you take somebody's awkward sentence and you go, okay, let me make this better. And it's interesting, too, because these are the kinds of things that you could be doing if you were an English teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, but as an English teacher, your only job is to tell the student the ways in which they're screwing up and then grade them on how well they did. As an editor, if that if they turn you in a D paper and you're in a position where you have to run the article, it has to be an A when you when you let go of it or as close to it as you can get it. And I've had articles turned into me that needed a ton of work on that level. And a ton of work uh, gets put into it because I, I want the article to be good because even if it's going to have that writer's name on it, it's going to represent me as an editor. And I think the copy quality in the magazine has tremendously improved over the years I've been there because of that. Um, so that's something I feel that I'm responsible to do. But the other side of that is that um, – I also want to preserve the person's wording as much as possible. I don't want to take a sentence they wrote in a certain way that reflects their writing style and rewrite it so it reflects my writing style because I think my writing style is better. What I want to do is preserve their writing style while also making it the best sentence it can be. And that, the tension between those two things is a huge headache sometimes. Looking at somebody's sentence and being like, oh, it's hard for me to tell what they're trying to say here, but I think they're trying to say this. Now let me change this sentence in as few ways as possible and also make it say that thing clearly. And there are times where I have to call people or email people and say, in paragraph 14, you said this. What do you mean by that? Because I don't understand, and I need to be able to understand what you're trying to say so that I can make it communicable in the best terms possible. These are all the kinds of things that I have to do with any article we put up on the web, on the internet, on in the magazine, everywhere. Um, and that's a big part of my job. But that's not all of it by any means. There's also having to know, and this is where other people's voices are very important too. Okay. Having to know what's going on in the area you're covering enough that you know what subject matter the magazine should focus on. Like this new issue that we have coming out in a few weeks, there are certain articles in it that were pitched to me by writers. And I have to be smart enough because a writer will hit me up with a bunch of pitches. If I've got certain people that write for me every time we do a mag or write for me a lot of times when we do a mag, 
um, and I'll say to them, what do you want to write about? I need pitches for the new issue. And they can send me a half a dozen pitches, and I'm only going to use one. And I have to know enough to say this thing that they want to write about is the thing that we should put in the next issue. And I ask them questions. You know, if it's a writer who's writing about music, it's like, okay, these are local bands that are on the come up that you're bringing up to me. And, you know, I need to know what is going on in their careers right now to know who's peaking at this moment, who's most relevant and time-sensitive at this moment. If a band's about to put out a new album and we're going to put a story in the magazine that's going to dovetail with about the release of their new album, that's going to be more important than a band that's like last released an album two years ago and isn't at a point where they're about to do any big things. They're just kind of somebody we should recognize at some point. It's like, well, maybe we'll hold off on that until they're about to do a thing, and then we can focus the article around the thing they're doing, make it more relevant to their career, and make it more of a reason that people will care about the article. So these are all things I have to be thinking about as well. And then there are issues of us sitting around the editorial office saying, we should run an article about this, and it's an idea we have, and... Sometimes I'll do it. Like, if it's something I'm passionate about. Um, I'm trying to think of the last time I wrote an article for the print mag. Um, it's not even necessarily going to be something I'm an expert in. Like, at one point, uh, maybe three or four issues ago, I interviewed three 20-something female artists, two of which are good friends of mine, and one of which is a friend of theirs. Mm-hmm. And they work together as DJs and spin records as a, as a trio. And they also are all visual artists who are trying to make their way in the world as visual artists. One of them only works as an artist. One of them works as a waitress and then does art uh, as pretty much like the rest of her time. And one of them had like a nine-to-five job but was trying to do art on the weekends. But they were all working and selling artists out in the world, selling their crafts. And I was like, you know, the three of you were really interesting because of like the point you're at in your careers as artists and because you're doing this DJ thing and that's becoming another thing because, you know, they, they had enough of a rep, they could make money doing that. I don't know anything about either of those things, really. Visual art, like, I know to look at it, but I don't know a ton about it. Right. But because these were people I know and I was passionate about the idea of getting them in the magazine, I wrote that article myself. And it was tough. It was a difficult process. But um, I did it, you know. But a lot of times stuff will come up, somebody will be like, we should do an article about this thing. Like, most recently, film festivals happening in Richmond, because there are several that happen every year. I don't know anything about that. I don't, I'm not in a position where I care about it enough to be able to make the time to go out and do it. So who's going to write it? So then we have this whole other crew of writers that we keep in touch with who are people who've interned for us or people who've written for us in the past, and we'll seek out somebody who is both qualified and interested enough to do the article. And so all of these these aspects go into making the magazine what it is. On a day-to-day basis with the web, I have to put up four or five articles a day, five days a week. So that's potentially 15 to 30 articles going wow. up on our website every week. Yeah. And a certain amount are contributed by freelance contributors who, and we can't afford to pay people who write for the web because we do so many articles for the web. 
Um, so if they can't, if they aren't willing to work for free, sadly, we're not able to work with them, um, um, except on the print mag. And uh, that's a shame, but it is the economic situation in which we're in, and hopefully it'll get better. But some people care about the thing they're writing about enough that they're willing to do it for free. I was that person for a long time, so I understand. Mm. Um, but those people are only going to contribute two or three articles a week. Then we have interns. Interns contribute... Each, you know, we'll have four or five interns, and each of them will do one or two articles a week. So that's a few more. But then the rest of the slack has to be taken up by either me or the other, other editors. We have to write the articles ourselves. So I'll come in to work on any given day and have a deadline for that day that's basically I have to write two or three articles and post them on the website before 4 p.m. And wow. once a week I write a, a preview of all the upcoming shows for the week that I think are the most interesting. Mm-hmm. And that eight shows, I'll write one to three paragraphs about a piece. And I do that article Tuesday night and Wednesday morning and then have it posted generally by midday on Wednesday. And that is 3,000 words a lot of times. So that's just half one day. You know, these are all things that are going on. And let me tell you, I don't. I sometimes feel like I don't have time to scratch my nose, you know. <laughs> I am busy. I was writing last night a thing for, you know, between that and the blog and the zine that I now want to do. Like last night and this morning, I've been working on an article for the zine. And um, I'm behind on email, meanwhile. So before I go into work on Monday, I'm going to have to check 150 emails on uh, on my email inbox because I get tons and tons of press releases sent to me. And sometimes they're things that don't matter at all, and I just gloss right past them. But some of them are things that are that I wouldn't know about otherwise that need to be written about. And whether I assign them to an intern or I do them myself, it's still something I need to know about. And I keep it up with my emails a full-time job. I spend an hour or two a day checking email. You know? So it's, it's just it's a ton of stuff. And that concludes part three of our four-part interview with Andrew. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on March 22, 2014. various things in part four of our four-part interview with Andrew Nietzsche. Enjoy! How, how do you feel like um, your magazine being in print? You, you guys release it both print and digitally. Um, how important do you feel it is for print magazines to exist nowadays? For what we're doing, honestly, the print magazine is in demand on a level that we can't begin to meet. Really? Oh, oh God. We print 5,000 of each issue, and hopefully that number will go up in the future, but that's where we're at right now. And those issues, you can't get it. I talked to so many people who were like, I never see RVA magazine anywhere. And I say to them, you know, it's because we put them out. We put them out at over 200 locations around the city, and they're gone because if we've got 5,000 of them and we go to a location 
even if it's somebody like Mekong, who is a, probably our number one advertiser, Mekong gets a whole stack of issues, but that's mm. a really highly trafficked bar. And in one night, if we leave them 60 issues, they could go through them, you know, and that's kind of like how it is. We, we could probably print 50,000 of them and give them away in the three months before we can do another issue. And we can only afford to print 5,000 right now. So it's hugely in demand. People want to read it. And one thing I've learned from editing the website and from editing the magazine is that people want two different kinds of content Mm -hmm. from those two products. People go to the website for, like, the kind of day-to-day trending info that isn't necessarily developed in depth very much but can give them a little bit of information that they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, you know, online I'll post a thing, like I posted a thing the other day, this band has got a, it's a deathcore band, local deathcore band called Seraph, and they've got a new album coming out, and they sent me a song, and I posted the song on our SoundCloud. It's like an exclusive new song by this band. Check it out. Go check out their album. It's coming out in two weeks. You know, check out the record release show. And I post something like that, and I write two two paragraphs, include some quotes from the singer, and post a link, not even a link, embed the song on SoundCloud into the article. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing is completely not what would go in a print mag. What would go in a print mag is a long, in-depth interview with an artist, perhaps, you know, a, a slightly bigger artist, maybe even a national artist who came through Richmond recently or is coming through Richmond soon. Those kind of things are what people want to see from the magazine, but they don't do that well on the web. Like, it's a lot more likely that we're going to get hits off a quick hit piece of information that that relates to what's going on in town right now on the web, whereas more in-depth articles seems to be what the, the print mag is for. And that's, I don't understand that dynamic completely, I just know it exists. I'm glad to hear that you, you, you guys realize that one of the things that seems to be holding back a lot of media, old media, from adapting to the way the world works nowadays is not understanding the the, the inherent literacies of a medium. And the inherent literacy of digital seems to be now, right now, has no attention span. It, it's designed for what do you need to know right now? You know? Um, so the way you guys are structuring this is very intelligent to the way these mediums are strong. What do you think would be, I've already asked you what a, what a good editor does. What do you think is like the worst thing you could do as an editor? Well, that's, uh, it's tough to say worst. There are bad things. Um, Definitely, I think, like, a lot of people online and even in print magazines these days are really, really giving short shrift to copy editing. And I just hate to see that happen because if there are obvious and stupid mistakes that you're just not paying somebody to look over and make a pass across and do the proofreading and they get into your magazine, and they get into your publication. On the web, you can at least change it. You can edit the article later, and that's good, although I question whether all that many people bother to. 
Um, mm-hmm. But that option is at least available to you. In print, though, forget it. If you let a mistake go, and and believe me, I haven't caught them all. I haven't come close to catching them all. But I, you know, I'm at least trying. And I think the problem is a lot of print and web publications have decided that copy editing is not important and is not worth paying people to do. And I understand about the budget crunch. We're all having trouble, you know, but it's just regardless of what the money realities might be, I don't care. Copy editing is important because if your articles come out with stupid mistakes in them, you're not only hurting the comprehension and knowledge base of your readership because they're perhaps learning something wrong because you wrote it wrong and that's the only place they ever saw it, Uh, or perhaps they're internalizing these common, there's so many common spelling and grammar and and homonym type errors that I see Mm. that are just becoming really common in the world of the internet because all this copy editing stuff is going by the wayside. Ultimately, you're making your publication less serious. Like, anybody who's smart enough to catch those mistakes is going to take you less seriously. And anybody who's reading it and who doesn't catch those mistakes because they're ignorant or they haven't studied it or it's not their forte, they're not a speller, they're not a grammarian, whatever, you're just making it that much harder for them to learn the things the way they should be. And I just feel like that is very unserious. And as I said, I think it's a structural issue. I think a lot of journalists don't have the money. A lot of publications don't have the money. And that's where they choose to cut their workforce. But I think it's a mistake. And yeah, I think ultimately making sure the shit that you put into the world reads as well as possibly can read is very important. And it's something that a lot of people don't do. So that's the big (laughs) one this stands out in my mind is like lack of copy editing. I really think any editor is going to find that people are going to take their publication less seriously if they're not watching for this shit. What would your ultimate goal, I guess, be in doing a, serving as an editor with RVA magazine? My ultimate goal? Yeah. Like, like what do you, what do you see as like the best thing that can happen from having a great, well-edited, relevant publication? Um, well, when you put it that way, I think, uh, I think I have a, I think I have a real answer for that. Um, I guess my main concern with this city is the idea that Richmond is a backwater and, of course, when we were growing up in the punk scene in Richmond, we had a real strong punk scene, and, and there was a pretty strong metal scene here. And I think at the time it was easy for us to believe that everybody knew that Richmond was one of the best cities in the country for music and that kind of thing. But uh, getting outside of the punk scene and working with RVA Mag, 
in a capacity of trying to reach a more general audience has made me realize that a lot of people do not see this city that way. And what's sad is I do deal with it sometimes even within the magazine. Writers will have this idea about certain bands and stuff. And you hear it a lot. People saying, oh, but they're pretty good for a local band. And it's like they're holding, they're not taking music from their city seriously it's like oh well if a band's really going to be awesome like the kind of band whose record is like my favorite record next year they wouldn't be from richmond Mm -hmm. or if they were from richmond they would have moved to new york or la and signed to some big label and made it big through like the 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 machinations of the music industry and now everybody knows who they are because they went somewhere else to make it. You have to go somewhere else to make it because Richmond is a backwater. Yeah. And that whole perception really exists here, and I don't think other publications in town do much of anything to fight it. Um, I think Style Weekly plays into that. I think the RTD plays into that. I don't want to play into that. I want to create a magazine that not only respects but supports and uplifts the culture of Richmond, Virginia's scene in a way that promotes the idea that you do not have to leave. You don't have to leave Richmond to live in a culturally relevant and important city. And I see a lot of kids get done with VCU or whatever and move to New York or move somewhere else. And, like, on one hand, I understand that. There's a part of me that wonders if I'm not going to have to leave Richmond if RVA doesn't work out for me. Like, if I get to a point where I'm not uh, moving forward in my career Mm. and I need to find a new job or if the magazine fails, which is always a possibility in journalism, and I need to find a new job. Like, am I going to have to move to a bigger city to get hired? Maybe. But at the same time, what I worry about is the kind of people who live here, grow up here, work regular jobs here, and maybe even play music or do art or whatever, thinking that Richmond doesn't have a real culture that they can partake in and experience, even if they're just experiencing it as a viewer, even if they're just experiencing it as somebody who pays to get in and is there at the show. Like, they're not ever going to see what you can see in New York. And what's sad is a lot of touring bands, a lot of bigger touring bands, don't really come through here for whatever reason. The National gets a fair amount of shows that didn't used to come through here, but it's still not where I'd like to see it. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But for local stuff, there's a lot of things happening locally in every genre. And, yeah, with RVA Magazine, I just want to treat all of it with the respect it deserves. I want to take musicians seriously. I want to take artists seriously. And if they're doing good work, I want to treat them like they're equivalent to an artist from any other city that's doing good work and try to make our readers feel like they do live in a culturally relevant place because then maybe they won't leave and maybe they'll help build. You know, if the culture appears relevant, they'll add to it. But if the culture appears irrelevant or dying or just not all that there, 
they'll go somewhere else and they'll add to the culture in that place. I'd rather these people stay here. If they have something to contribute, I want them to contribute it to Richmond because this is this is a city that I consider home and uh, I think it's valuable. And that concludes part four of our four-part interview with Andrew. I'd like to thank him for taking the time to do this interview, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on March 22, 2014.